Welcome to the Joe Schmo Theology Podcast, where we discuss confessions. I ain't confessing nothing! Reformed theology. I don't know what either of those words mean. And apologetics. I am not apologizing for anything either. I am your host, Adam D. Murray, and joined with me today on this program is my brother, Aaron D. Murray. What's up, y'all? This is a bonus episode of Joe Schmo Theology, the podcast where two dummies talk about smart things. I'm Aaron Murray, and in this case, it is only one dummy and a very intelligent man, um, Mark Garcia. Mark is the founding president of uh, Greystone Theological Institute, as well as an assistant editor for the five-volume Minutes and Papers of the Westminster Assembly. Mark is currently teaching a uh, early church history class that I'm taking, and I just had to grab you to uh, record an episode with you. So, Mark, how you doing? Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I am one of the dummies uh, in the room, there's no question. Well, I don't know what that makes the rest of us then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but thank you for having me. I'm glad to, glad to join the group. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am the president of Grayson Theological Institute and a fellow of Scripture and Theology there. I'm also the pastor of Emmanuel Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, both the institute and the church are on the northwest side of Pittsburgh, real close to the Pittsburgh airport, in a little borough called Coriopolis. And I've been the pastor there. I'm in my, let's see, 12th year now as the pastor there. Uh, grew up in Miami, Florida, um, with a, a Cuban family uh, on my dad's side, an American family on my mom's side, and I've take, taken that uh, conflicted personality with me wherever I've gone, including college, then Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, University of Edinburgh after that, um, pastoral internship uh, after that, uh, some time in Cambridge. Uh, but since then, uh, really enjoying pastoral ministry and, and training pastors and uh, theologians in the making by way of Greystone. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit more about Greystone. Um, sure. How does it differ from a seminary? Sure, yeah. Um, we like to refer to Greystone as your next step. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true for whoever you are and wherever you are um, in your pursuit of greater theological understanding and, and growth uh, and knowledge of Scripture. Um, it is focused especially uh, on the academic end, at least, on um, that stage that comes right after a first seminary degree. So we target the THM level and PhD level um, as a way of providing continuing education for ministers, as well as uh, educational opportunities for other thoughtful Christians who want to, to learn more. So it's a rather rigorous program. Um, other courses are fairly advanced, um, but this is because we're we're really keen to advance the Reformed theological tradition, uh, to push in terms of higher quality and uh, thoughtful work that will serve the church, um, as well as advance the tradition as such. Um, but alongside all the academic programs, we, we have theological communities, theological learning communities, we call them, where theological fellowship um, is, our, is our main, uh, main target. And so we get thoughtful Christians together in a variety of places, as well as online for reading room groups uh, where a particular text is discussed and discussion is led by a, a capable leader. Uh, we have um, conferences and seminar lectures and one day 
uh, study day events. We also have two research and educational centers. One is the Center for the Study of Ethics and Technology, uh, focusing on um, the rapidly changing world of technology and how it bears on matters of Christian ethics and faithfulness. And then we have the Lydia Center for Women and Families that I direct. This focuses on issues of gender, um, family, marriage and divorce theory, children, um, and not only faithful pastoral theology and practice, but also um, really advancing understanding. So doing a lot of the, the spade work and scholarship to advance our understanding of these important questions. Uh, so these are some of the things Greystone does, and sure. we do them in a variety of contexts, and the Lord has blessed the work so far. Sure. Well, great. Great. Yeah. Yeah, if uh, someone wanted to learn more about Greystone or, or get connected with Greystone, how, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, the easiest way is probably just to go to our website, G-R-E-Y, graystoneinstitute.org, um, or graystoneconnect.org. Um, what I find most people are, are excited about is um, we have what's called the Greystone Membership. And... All of our courses and events and special lectures, the full courses, they're all recorded, produced, and then uploaded to our graystoneconnect.org site. And a Greystone member, it doesn't have to be a, a student with Greystone or anything of the sort, but um, for the price of a paperback every month, you get access to all of the courses, all the events, all of the lectures. And people seem to really enjoy just um, picking and choosing from these advanced courses or other lectures and, and listening to them much as they would your podcast sure. and other resources out there. And I think that's probably the best way to gain uh, a good sense of what's happening in Greystone across the board sure. is become a Greystone member. We certainly would love to invite more of you along uh, for the ride. Sure, sure. So if people were to do that, yeah. which class would you recommend they listen to first? Um, wow, that's a good question. There's some really, really great classes there already and a number of exciting ones uh, coming in the next uh, few months. Um, I think uh, people might find the theological anthropology class um, of, of some interest. This explores issues of, of gender along the lines of um, uh, non-traditional in some respects, or at least non-conventional lines of, of liturgy um, and vocation rather than mere biology. So there's a lot of relevant stuff there. Um, then there's a, a really helpful uh, course on Job that has been posted by Dr. Don Collett. Job is Christian scripture. Uh, we have some other exciting ones that are going to be added soon. One on Christianity and late antiquity. Um, another one on topics of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have one on Isaiah as Christian scripture that will be um, up there in the fall. Um, there are also um, some Lydia Symposia that are there. One was on domestic violence and pastoral ministry. Another one was um, uh, related to that, but dealt with uh, divorce issues as well. Those have been uh, of help to some people, so they may find that interesting. But there's quite a bit of variety there. I would encourage people maybe to try out the, um, the small series on the Christian faith and technology. Um, this is done by uh, Michael Sacasas, who directs our Center for the Study of Ethics and Technology. And he explores the issue of human flourishing in a world of rapidly changing technologies where Christians maybe tend to think a little too thinly about what we mean by technology and limit it, for instance, to how often we should use our cell phones and things like that, when there are some really big questions worth thinking about. And he does a great job, I think, leading us in some faithful reflection 
um, on that important front. Mm -hmm. So that might be an interesting sample. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, now I want to ask you more questions about yeah. ethics <laughs> and technology, but that's not what we're here for. Um, we're, we're here for, for church history. So I know that church history is not your primary discipline, but it is uh, one of the many disciplines that you have. So why should the average Joe Schmo Christian care about church history or study church history? Yes, it's a good question um, worth, worth thinking about. On the one hand, it's, it's sad that there would need to be a case mm -hmm. made for that any more than we would need to have a case made for understanding the family we belong to, mm -hmm. um, the history of the region that we and our families have lived in, things like that. And especially in the case of the church, as it's God's work in history. At the same time, I think we want to have a, a, a good understanding of why it's important, which requires that we, we set aside maybe some bad reasons for thinking it's important. A bad reason for looking at church history as important is the, the naive assumption that when we go to history, we'll find this unbroken narrative that leads developmentally to my own ideas mm -hmm. and shows that I, I'm at a, a point uh, in this story of uh, unprecedented maturity of reflection and conviction and everything before me has been leading up to where I am now or where my church is now. Um, unfortunately, there are some who at least seem to think that way when they go to the texts of the tradition historically and go to church history. They almost expect it to be a story leading to them. Um, that's not in fact the case. Uh, another bad reason to look at church history would be um, to look at the major voices in the Christian tradition as these uh, pristine antecedents for, uh, again, my own tradition, who are teaching things that because they are older and eminent are therefore always right. Mm -hmm. And they're necessarily gonna have a more authoritative and, and better grasp on things that will help me now. Uh, without question, it's the case that the tradition helps us understand things far better than we would otherwise, but it's not because they are flawless authorities that simply by appealing to them, we can settle an argument. Mm -hmm. um, so why then should we take an interest in church history? Um, well, I think one reason for that, um, for, for the importance of this exercise, is to gain a sense of proportion. Mm -hmm. It requires humility, to be sure, but the closer we look at the realities of church history, the more impressed we are that the church continues to survive at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's without question a work of God's providence and His grace and His mercy. The church has not always been strong. Um, as, as many students of church history will, uh, will understand and appreciate, um, the Lord has often, to use that familiar expression, drawn a straight line with a crooked stick mm -hmm. and used very deeply flawed servants uh, and deeply flawed churches to accomplish what without question is His, his, his will. Mm -hmm. Um, the Nicene controversy was far from a straightforward thing. Mm -hmm. The triumph of orthodoxy over Arianism was never obvious until it was all over. Um, Ambrose is a particularly mm -hmm. colorful and mixed figure um, who on the one hand helps ensure Nicene orthodoxy and on the other hand gives us a lot of the problems that we continue to wrestle with today and that shaped uh, Christendom throughout the medieval period. 
for a decent part of the church's history, the church ex survived only in a Nestorian form mm -hmm. in the East. And uh, so gaining a, a knowledge of these things, that uh, uh, the nitty-gritty and sometimes dirty realities of the story of the church in history, they give us a, a sense of proportion and that we appreciate that what we might think is most important for us to figure out theologically and practically is not necessarily what the church has always thought of the most important things. And we regain a sense of perspective um, by listening to what the church historically has thought important and what it's wrestled with. And it may give us a better perspective on what we are wrestling with. It doesn't necessarily mean that what we deal with now is unimportant, but we can locate our questions in the big story of the church exploring its questions and um, that context it does a great deal for us mm -hmm. it, it gives us the benefit of the wisdom of the ages um, and a maturity about our own reflection that is often conspicuously missing in those who um, inflate the importance of their own interests and pet hobbies and ideas um, and show that they have no awareness of the history of it mm -hmm. and where the church has been on this question before mm -hmm. so a sense of proportion know where you come from be reminded that the church is far bigger than you are, mm -hmm. far bigger than your congregation, far bigger than your denomination's concerns and interests. Uh, the church is, is bigger, deeper, wider, and often messy, um, and clearly an object of God's love and grace, mm -hmm. um, so that our, our confidence can rest securely in Him, uh, even if sometimes it's despite what the church is saying and doing, mm -hmm. uh, although hopefully it's often because of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So as you've uh, spent years studying church history, what are some of your favorite stories? Oh, favorite stories, yes. Um, one of my favorites is the, uh, the big showdown in Ambrose's day between Ambrose, who was widely regarded as a great orator, a great public speaker, um, between Ambrose and the emperor's mother, Valentinian's mother, who uh, favored the Arians and, and wanted to have a little, a little chapel on site with her own Nicene, uh, I'm sorry, her own Arian bishop appointed uh, to oversee the ministry there. Can I pause you for just a second? Yes, go for Can it. Can you explain what Arianism is? Arianism, yeah. Arianism is an early church her heresy that denied the full divinity of the Son of God and um, taught instead something like um, the, the son's derivative divine status as a lower divine being than the father. Mm -hmm. So it denied the full divinity of the son. We could say a lot more about it, right. but that's the basic yeah. idea. Right. Um, so in Ambrose's day, Ambrose is very concerned to make sure there's no Arianism around. He's impeccably orthodox, but um, he also, uh, of course, needs to deal with the emperor and the emperor's mother in this situation. So the emperor's mother calls for this big public debate and she's going to have her bishop uh, over against uh, Ambrose in this kind of public duel of theology and so she uh, invites a big crowd, sets up the debate and at the time it's supposed to start, Ambrose simply never shows up. Instead he goes to another part of town um, into a different public square and just starts preaching, just starts teaching, speaking. And people notice it's Ambrose and they start to come hear him speaking. And before long, there's a big crowd where Ambrose is and there's nobody where the other guy was. 
and uh, it was a pretty uh, a pretty effective way to end the whole debate, mm-hmm. and that's how he won the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a funny story. Another one is um, another one is uh, story about Calvin. I was reminded of it recently. I saw a reference to it recently. Read about it a number of years ago as well. But uh, there was apparently a woman in Geneva who had a special interest, we shall say, in uh, community and church leaders in Geneva, um, apparently romantic interest in ministers and other leaders in Geneva, and would basically go from man to man and, and try her best to win him over romantically. Uh, Calvin apparently came home one day and found this woman inside of his house and panicked and <laughs> sure. looked for ways to get her driven out and was very angry, and eventually it was successful. I think her name was Benoit or something like that. But you can almost picture the scene of a very frail and stern Calvin, always full of vigor and passion, coming home and discovering the situation and uh, somewhat Joseph-like, kind right. of running away uh-huh. and trying to find some, some remedy and apparently pretty angry uh, at the scene as well. Uh, another one would be the interesting story of... Well, hang on, hang on. Oh, yeah, you want to stay there? How did, she, how did he get rid of her? <laughs> uh, I think he just had, ended up getting the, the leaders of Geneva involved, and they ended up taking Okay, and, and, yeah. and how did she get into his house, and where was his wife? I don't know. We don't really have all that information. It's just something tucked away in his correspondence. Hmm. Um, so it's not really something he tells us a lot about. Um, maybe showing us how, how uh, frustrated he was. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, sorry, carry on. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the whole notion of sanctuary, you know, um, with the recent uh, fire in the Notre Dame mm-hmm. Cathedral, I was reminded of this because, of course, the, the Disney movie for Notre Dame mm-hmm. makes much of Esmeralda's mm-hmm. finding sanctuary in the Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, but it reminded me of, of the very curious history of the whole notion of seeking sanctuary in a church building. It's one of those things, just like uh, much of what happens in Ambrose's life, it's one of those things about church tradition that's actually drawn from ancient Roman uh, political ideals. Um, In this case, some ancient Roman laws about using sacred space become translated into, uh, you don't arrest someone or, or kill someone or anything like that when they're inside of a church building. Uh, Ambrose himself um, took over some of those ancient Roman laws in order to seize back Aryan church buildings and make them orthodox, and he used the Roman law to to make his case. Uh, The sanctuary idea has very much the the same um, impulse, but interestingly, um, the sanctuary idea, while it started to wobble and, and started to fizzle out uh, around the time of the Reformation because of abuses, um, it in fact never completely died away. And you can still see examples of using sanctuary uh, into the 19th, even into the early 20th century in in England, there were still attempts to go into a church building, claim sanctuary, and then you couldn't be touched. Um, But one of the things people don't often know about claiming sanctuary is that ordinarily, when you claim sanctuary as a fugitive, um, and you're usually somebody who had murdered someone else or stolen something, when you claim sanctuary, it also meant 
uh, in almost every case that you would be exiled for the rest of your life. Hmm. So you could be in the church building, yeah, for 40 days or whatever, whatever it usually was. It was usually 40 days. But then after the 40 days were up, you didn't just go about your business. You were, you were exiled out of the town hmm. for the rest of your life. So it was a way of giving up, uh, giving up yourself. Um, but it meant that you didn't have to spend those 40 days in a prison where there was violence and disease and you at least survived those 40 days but then you would be gone for the rest of your life. So it was still a very costly thing. Hmm. Um, but interestingly, the sanctuary idea appears to be one of those uh, often overlooked ideas lurking in the background of recent immigration debates. Mm -hmm. um, because the notion of sanctuary is what led, in some contexts, to seeing um, fugitives from violence who, who leave one country to go to another um, usually, uh, the sanctuary idea had something to do with why it was assumed that by going to a different region, a different geographical space, you would be protected um, from the laws that prevailed in the other space or the realities that, that prevailed there. And it was often connected with church reality. So churches would provide sanctuary for people fleeing violence in other lands as well as from their neighbors. Uh, so there's an interesting mixed history of the sanctuary idea with um, how we think about what makes a church building different from other buildings and spaces, uh, where that idea comes from historically and philosophically, and also how we think about um, realms of responsibility and uh, jurisdiction. Um, so there's actually much more going on with Esmeralda and the Hunchback. Mm -hmm. um, than we might think at first sight. So it's one of those interesting snippets of mm -hmm. church history that shows up now and then. Sure, sure. So are you a fan of the Hunchback movie? I liked it. I liked that movie. Not because it was you know, thrilling for someone with a historical nerve <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the story is extremely predictable, but it's... It's a, it's a good yarn, it's mm -hmm. a good tale. Mm -hmm. um, for its day, the animation was spectacular. Mm -hmm. The images were breathtaking mm -hmm. of Notre Dame and Paris. Um, that remains the case. The other one that's like that is Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. The cinematography for animation at the time, just breathtaking, mm -hmm. uh, the ballroom especially, in the, in the dining room. So uh, I, I tend to have, a, uh, I take a lot of pleasure mm -hmm. in, the animation and the art involved and I think those are really really good examples right. of what they could do at the time right. so I still enjoy them it's yeah. a pretty good story now is this your artistic background that makes you enjoy them or is it more oh, an architectural know. type I don't know um, maybe I, I just think they're, they're beautiful okay. <laughs> yeah okay. alright so generally when we when we do this and, and Adam my brother the, the co-host he hates it but it doesn't matter. <laughs> we generally try and play some silly game in oh, between. So, so we're not going to do that. Don't worry. I'm not going to subject you to that. However, oh, if, you could, if you good. could, it, it will be a hypothetical question. Okay. So you can have fun with it. All Answer right. it however you want. If you could bring anybody from the past and oh, no. church history to bring oh, to no. today, who would it be and what topic would you want them to deal with? Maybe I should have primed you for this, but... This is more yeah, fun. that would have been helpful. <laughs> that would have been very, very helpful. Um, all right. Well, now you have to help me because I, I need to, I need to start whittling this down a bit. Okay. All right. Uh, so, what counts as church history? Um, the days of the apostles. 
Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's rule out the apostles. So. All right. Anyone in the life of Christ? Uh, all right. So now you're looking for disciples <laughs> of the apostles. Okay, I'll give you that. No, the first thought is is Mary actually. I, I have. Okay. I have, all right. Well, have, let's go with this. I'll, I'll be interested. I have so many questions for Mary. Okay. Yes. Um, I would like I would like to know if she had taken a vow of virginity mm-hmm. before. Um, before the birth of, of Jesus, and if that's how we should understand Matthew and Luke, mm-hmm. uh, especially her response um, to the angel, you know, how is this going to be that I'm going to have a child? Since mm-hmm. this is what any anyone about to be married expects is going to happen to her one day, is that she'll probably have a child. So why does she react the way she does? Had she taken a vow of virginity in terms of how Numbers describes such a vow, uh, even for married people? Um, I'd want to know what it was uh, what it was like to. Um, to be very much on the run mm-hmm. um, and vulnerable, and to be married to Joseph, um, who himself would, uh, I have to think, have a lot in common with a lot of people we see in our pews and churches who had certain plans for his life, mm-hmm. um, and they're all just thoroughly shaken to the core um, and uh, is running for his life from a bloodthirsty Herod. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and away from home and uh, with a, a betrothed uh, young lady who is um, mysteriously pregnant and yes he has been told uh, by the angel what's going on here but uh, there must have still been a great deal of, of difficulty mm-hmm. and struggle for him um, yeah I have a, I have a lot of questions about uh, uh, the way Mary apparently became even within the new testament an example of what the church is supposed to be like Mm -hmm. someone who listens um, and treasures in her heart the the word of the lord Um, in her especially unique situation as the one who gives birth to the one who will give her a new birth Mm -hmm. um, as the one who hears her son you know later on say it's it's the ones who hear his word and follow it that are really his mother Mm -hmm. his brothers and sisters and yet that's exactly what Mary is, is most known for, is how we find her in her last mention in Acts chapter 1 as she's with the apostles, as she always had been, just listening, mm-hmm. treasuring, receiving the word, and being one of God's people. There's a great deal in Mary that I've come to admire and to learn from, and it only makes me more interested in finding out mm-hmm. more about her exemplary piety and um, the unique circumstances of her. Mm-hmm. Of her discipleship. Um, 